0: Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Sam Alexander with the news. On the community calendar, Our Lady of Serene Waters in Castle Rock is hosting a casino night at the Knights of Columbus Hall the last Friday of this month. But if you're looking for an excuse to visit the rock sooner, you're in luck. Today is the grand opening of needful things. We hope to see you there. You are listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, C.M. Alexander, alongside Joshua Kahn. Hey, everybody. And Benjamin Graham.
1: Why, hello, constant readers. Come <laughs> in and sample our wares. <laughs>
0: and hopefully you've guessed today or you listened to our previous episodes (laughs) that we are covering another patreon selection by joel jones needful things through chapter seven and we have josh leading our discussion
2: oh guys i'm so excited to get to this book Uh, as we've talked about before this was my first king book so and i know ben you've read this so do you remember where in your king reading you came across needful things
1: it must have been fairly early, because once I discovered the interconnectedness, I heard of the the Castle Rock cycle. And I read them in order, except for Cujo for some reason. <laughs> I skipped Cujo. But I read uh, Dead Zone, Dark Half, and the novella Sundog, uh, all of which play into this book almost immediately even almost immediately (laughs) in one of the coolest forwards to a book i've ever read uh
2: before we get to the forward and cm just to reiterate you have never read this book
0: i haven't and that has been a real problem for me in preparation for this episode because normally i like to do a little bit of online research see what other people think see what i can find out about it that i might not have known or thought about so that i have some talking points and I was so terrified to do that because I didn't want to spoil anything. <laughs> like, there are names that come up and I keep thinking, damn it, I know we, we've heard that. And mm-hmm. I feel like we've heard it recently. Who the hell is it? What <laughs> book is it from? And I also really, really wanted to keep reading past our stopping point. Mm-hmm. I picked the book up like three times, just in one night. It was on my bedside table. And I was like, okay, I'm just, okay, no, put it down. Well, no, <laughs> what if I just, no, just put it down.
1: It's. I so, enjoy it so much so far. so insanely readable. Joel Jones, who is our Patreon subscriber, who suggested this book, on Facebook said that this is a guilty pleasure of his. That's insane, Joel. This is a legitimately, sincerely amazing fucking book. It feels like coming home again for me,
2: this <laughs> being my first book. It's so hard to explain. But let's, uh, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Ah uh, Ben, you talked about the the forward. the forward is so unique. do you want to talk about it a little bit?
1: Yeah, right from the start, um, I love a Stephen King forward. I mean the constant readers. I love the feeling of him the, the talking to us yeah the the feel of a dialogue between King and his biggest fans and that's almost what this is, except. It is an unidentified person welcoming us back to Castle Rock. And we're sitting on the steps of the bandstand where I'll, it's kind of a tragedy. We haven't read Dead Zone yet. I
2: really want to. I'm very excited. It's <laughs>
1: such a good book because the bandstand plays a big part. Oh. This old man is just saying, talking to you in the... Second per I'm really bad at distinguishing <laughs> first, second, third person. But he's talking to you and saying, Hey, welcome back. I'm glad you're here. You've been here before. But uh things are things are going just right and dandy, and he is pointing out the people of the town and giving you the little inside scoop about what they're like and the little David Lynchian, like. Here's the underbelly of what's yeah, going on. Yeah, the, the
2: slight grudges
1: yeah, that people do, have.
0: Do we know that he's an old man? Does it say that?
1: No, because but in my head, he's just an old,
2: wise, <laughs> wise old yeah, man. Because young men don't know all these things about everybody in the town.
1: It's Stephen we, King. Yeah, It's Stephen exactly. King. Yeah. In my mind, it's present-day Stephen yep. King. Which, obviously, and this was written in 1991, it would have been younger Stephen King, but <laughs> in my head... <laughs> It's present day wise old man, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> this local John that we get concludes
2: with him announcing that there's a new store opening and that store is Needful Things. And we meet Brian Rusk. Brian Rusk is a, an 11-year-old boy who knows a lot about awnings. And we spend a lot of time on that. But most importantly, Brian Rusk is the first customer of Needful Things.
0: No, most importantly, Stephen King made me read some very explicit fantasies and wet dreams of an 11-year-old boy. (laughs) And I'm trying to figure out how I feel about that.
1: It's (laughs) not
2: great. But, i spoiler alert, I was an 11-year-old boy. And spot on.
0: Nailed it. And I assumed that I, I was just... You know, detached because I was never an eleven-year-old boy. Uh-huh. Maybe someday I aspire. <laughs> you know.
1: some of the we're I, I'm not gonna get into it now, but some of the sexual <laughs> elements of this book, of all things, are some of the things that I have memories of. We'll get to it. <laughs> the, the the sex is
2: very uh, explicit and intense. Every time it happens.
0: Okay, I'm just gonna say this now so we can be done with it and get it out of the way and I don't have to talk about it later. Women do know what amazing orgasms are by their own hand before some fucking man has to show <laughs> them what it's like. It's yeah, funny. but
2: women can't lift themselves up by the clitoris with one hand. <laughs>
3: Jeez.
2: But that's jumping way ahead. I can't wait to spend an hour on that scene. Brian Rusk, Goes by the the store and he sees that yesterday it said it was opening soon, but today he walks by and it says that it's open. So he goes inside and we meet the proprietor, Leland Gaunt. He is tall, old with a kind face, a charming smile, and his first and second fingers are exactly the same length. Which
1: I feel like that means something.
0: It comes up again. It comes it, up it, a it, lot. it comes up
1: constantly. It, it's one of those things that's like just meant to be a weird, uh like ominous portent, but also it's just such a weird detail that you're like, okay. It's it's like
2: if you were if you were not human, but you were making like a human suit, you might not pay attention to all your fingers being the, the different length.
0: Am I okay?
1: You're fine. Okay. <laughs> and CM is holding up her hand <laughs> to show us she has lines and her fingers are all different length. <laughs> But these details about Leland Gaunt
2: are very uh, mundane. My favorite details about Leland Gaunt. First, everyone perceives his eye color as different. When Brian Rusk sees his eyes, he sees the deep blue of Miss Ratcliffe, his speech therapy teacher's eyes, who he is having these fantasies about. And they just draw him in. And the counterbalance is that people are repulsed by his touch. And I just, I love those two so supernatural, so creepy Mm -hmm. things. It's so great.
1: Yeah. The first time I forget who it is that comes in, and after Brian, like, goes on about how blue this guy's eyes are, and the next people come in and say, his green eyes were beautiful. I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool.
0: Can I ask you guys a question or admit a fear? Maybe I'm not sure which.
3: Absolutely.
0: Reading about Leland Gaunt for the first time, I think, and I know this is going to come back to bite me. It's not going to be good because I've already seen some <laughs> warning signs. He's so cool. <laughs> he's so cool.
3: Yeah,
1: Leland Gaunt yes. is one of my favorite uh, King villains. He's so he's charming in the way that I feel like King wanted Straker to be charming. Yes. Yeah. But it works here.
0: I did keep thinking about that Salem's Lot, but I I love that he tells people enter freely and leave some of the happiness you bring. He's gotta be a good guy. Right? Yeah,
2: do you know who I I want to play Leland Gaunt? Hmm. Paul Rudd. <laughs> Honest to God. Really? Okay, he's makes- so he's so charming, but he can he can play he can go dark, and but the entire time you see him, you're like. What a good dude.
1: Everybody naturally <laughs> likes this guy. My that is interesting stunt casting. <laughs> Thank you. See, here's my problem with that is I have I know exactly in my brain what he looks like. My high school choir director, Mr. May. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and because uh, you two and the rest of the world that is <laughs> listening to this have no idea what nope. Mr. May looks like. Um, he looks like Leland Gut. He looks like <laughs> G-Man, the, co- the guy on the cover of Half-Life 2. Oh, <laughs> all yeah. right. Yeah, I'm on board. Yeah, that's the... I'm fully on board and for this. See C- for CM, who is still looking at me confused, he looks like a scary old man. The Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: So Brian goes around after he meets Leland Gaunt and he shows him the things in the store. Because nobody knows what is inside Needful Things. Brian is the first person inside. So he's seeing these display cases, like half empty, but other really cool items. There's a geode. There's a picture of Elvis.
0: Also, Brian is not our main character. (laughs) (laughs) No,
2: No, he is not. But he's our main character for this first chapter, pretty much.
1: Uh, We also, before this, we get some really cool small town flavor in the (laughs) form of Cora Rusk, his mother. Oh my god. Who is... You guys,
0: is Steven's mom okay?
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it is the same mom's, like, (laughs) archetype that we've seen over and over again. She's not as controlling as Mrs. Kasparak or something like that, but she's just like constantly shoving food in her face and watching tv and having loud conversations with her best friend about (laughs) how this store is probably just a junk store but it's hiding how incredibly interested these busy bodies of castle uh castle rock are yeah i love that uh when
2: Leland is saying that Brian is going to be the best advertisement he can get by being his very first customer. So he wants him to, he's going to give him a special price on anything he wants. And this is when we get our first supernatural piece of uh, property in the shop is he holds this wood splinter. Sam, do you want to tell us about the splinter?
0: The splinter is supposedly a relic from Noah's Ark we'll to say. The, it. Yeah. He says, He doesn't uh, come right out and say that.
1: Yeah, he's like <laughs> I can't say it's from Noah's Ark.
3: But it's from
0: around that time and it was found nearby where they say the ark landed. Yeah. And and so he hands it to Brian and he doesn't even want to touch it, which would be me. I'd be like, "Oh, if that's super old, don't put it near <laughs> me. I don't want to break it and have to buy it." And the moment that this petrified piece of wood touches his hand, He is transported, like, I think of it as sort of like VR. Like he, you know, somebody Mm, put a thing over his head and he can feel the waves and smell the salt from the ocean. And he's like taken to the actual boat that this piece of wood came from. And he's totally absorbed in it. And when he comes out of this hallucination fantasy i i don't quite know what to call it he doesn't run away screaming <laughs> which if that happened i mean that's not something that happens to you if that happened how would you guys react to that would you be like oh that's cool do you have any baseball cards <laughs>
1: <laughs> no i'd definitely be like what the fuck i'd
0: have a million questions for yeah. yeah
2: did you guys have the same experience when you were reading it and you know he closes his eyes and, and he's giving you all the context clues of, oh, you're on a boat and mm-hmm. you're following all the, and I hear birds chirping. Yep, that's on a boat. I'm moving up and down. Yeah, I'm on a boat. I hear lions roar. Wait, what? <laughs> it like, <I had> stopped. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, hold on.
1: No, I, I no, got I was, that. Yeah. It works with the, he's on Noah's yeah I, I, I get it. <laughs> or he's
0: on, like, uh, what was that? Never mind. With the, the guy and the tiger on the, boat I didn't watch it.
1: Yogi's Zark. No, (laughs) the live-action, really bad (laughs) eighties cartoon
0: tiger. Eh.
1: Peter Potamus was there. Never
2: mind. That was (laughs) the (laughs) name. Peter Potamus was there. Uh, After all of this, Leland says that he he knows his inventory so well. None of these items are gonna be great for Brian. So, what does he want?
0: Life of Pie. And now I have to keep all of that in. Good pull. Good pull,
2: CM. (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad we. Yeah, he wanted a copy of Life of (laughs) Pi autographed by the Tiger. Leland doesn't have that. So he settles for a Sandy Koufax card. Brian collects 1956 baseball cards. That's something his dad got him into. And he wants a Sandy Koufax card so bad. And guess who just happens to have one? And not only does he happen to have one, but it's autographed and it specifically says on the card to my good friend, Brian, with best wishes, Sandy Koufax.
0: After he has this experience with the petrified wood, I definitely expected Leland to be like, he signed this to you, but he doesn't play it that way. Instead, he's like oh, isn't this just, like, an amazing happenstance? You know, the kid who got this autographed was also named Brian. It just makes it more special to it's, you.
1: Yeah. Such Which is a, so cool. Yes, it's such a cool detail that gives you the ominous otherworldly feeling of, like, this is too perfect without it being outright supernatural yeah it shows
0: you how crafty Leland is
1: he never even
2: with the, the splinter he never acknowledges that anything happened to Brian he's just oh isn't that a cool thing you just held and plays it completely straight as though he's not fully aware of the effect of these things Gaunt tells him that he can buy it and the price is half and half it's half cash and half deed so he sells the card to Brian for 85 cents but then asks him if he knows Wilma Jerzyk And when he says yes, Gaunt continues to talk. But Brian fades away. You can tell he's coming under some sort of hypnosis. And the next thing he knows, he's being shoved out onto the street saying, thanks for coming by. And he has the card, so he knows he made some sort of deal.
0: I also love that we it's a mystery for us with Brian what happens. Mm -hmm. But very soon we do get to know what that's like when Leland puts somebody under his spell, which is really, really cool.
2: Next, we get to meet... Who is going to be one of our main characters, Polly? Ben, do you want to talk
1: about Polly a little bit? Polly runs the local sewing shop, You So Sew and So, Sew, which love is that name really gentleman please level <laughs> uh, gentleman, shop name please. She has extremely bad arthritis in her hands, which leads me to um, I need a name for this because it's the same. Thing i had with bobby anderson when i first read this book polly in my head was an old old woman
0: yes yeah. me too
1: she's 43 <laughs> <laughs> is not old at all
0: it's the arthritis it was
1: well, yeah it's it's the arthritis for the most part i just pictured her as this and she runs a sewing shop. Well, that's an old lady a, thing. Yeah, that's an old lady thing. She's
0: had a life, though, before mm-hmm. all of this. So I think that ages people in your head a little bit, too.
1: Yeah. But anyway, she's she's uh, not an old woman. She's just this woman that runs the local sewing shop. She is someone that the townspeople don't know how to feel about because she... They don't know what, how do they put it? They don't know if she's from here or from away. Mm -hmm. Because she was raised in Castle Rock and left at 17 because she was pregnant. And a few years ago, she came back without the baby and no one knows why.
0: She's also someone who breaks all of the, the small town rules that are just sort of inherent in most small towns. And everybody... Unspoken thing. They they all agree that they're going to adhere to these rules, and she just does her thing. So I love her. Oh (laughs) yeah, Polly kicks ass. She's a Ruth. Uh, They yes. Uh,
1: They spend time talking about on opening day of Needful Things the rules of small towns and new shops. How no one wants to be first to get there. No one wants to be last to leave. And you never bring a cake. And Polly. (laughs) comes to the store as soon as it opens with a cake. Immediately, you're like, I love
2: her. Yes,
1: What a great character.
2: Like, this, she clearly does not give a fuck about these social constructs, and, like, she's here to live her fucking life.
1: And uh, I don't know when it is we find this out, but there's one other very important and interesting thing to know about Polly Chalmers. She is currently dating a character we've met before. Yeah. Oh my. Okay. Oh, Sheriff, Alan Pangborn. Yeah. There's so much dark half
0: stuff in there this. Is. I didn't expect that.
1: Well, there's so much. They they dro- They're dropping references to, like I said, all the previous Castle Rock stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about Frank Dodd. Spoiler alert: Who was a serial killer in um, Insomnia? Uh, no. No. Um, Dead zone. In Dead Zone. They talk about Cujo, uh, who killed the previous sheriff George Bannerman. Who have we met George Bannerman no. in one of the stories? It read very, yet?
0: His name sounds familiar. And maybe they
1: referenced him in the Dark Half, but we yeah. never met him. Okay, and then I don't know if you guys have read this, but they keep referencing how the Emporium Galorium, run oh. by Pop Merrill, yeah. mm-hmm. uncle or grandfather of Ace Merrill, yeah. Who is the villain from Stand, by, Stand Me. by Me. Or The Body, I guess. Or The Body, yeah. yes. You know. oh. Burned down, and that happened in the novella The Sundog from Four Paths Midnight.
0: And Homer Gamanch.
1: Yeah,
2: they mentioned Homer Gamanch getting beaten to death with his, with his own oh, arm. yeah. And Norris being uh, somebody who pukes at crime scenes. Which was
1: just, <laughs> Yeah, all of that, it, this book is... Almost a central book. This is one. This is one of the. What do they call them? The the keystone books. Yeah, if you're getting into the Dark Tower or have read the Dark Tower, you need to read Needful Things. Especially later on. There's some (laughs) no spoilers. Sam's mind is going to be blown by the end of this book. I'm so excited. Uh,
0: It's so hard.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Usually, you guys get to watch me freak out. And I'm just so excited for the tables to get turned on, CM. uh,
0: So for the rest of this episode, can you guys just sort of tell me?
1: No. no, Damn it. Okay. I haven't read this in also like (laughs) 15 years. so
2: It is so weird the things that have come back to me as I've been reading them. Same. There's a a point we're going to get to a little bit later and I'll point it out. But Polly comes into the shop and is taken in by Leland's hazel eyes. And she's kind of really enamored with him right away. And she said she doesn't really warm up to people immediately, but she just is so on board for him right away.
0: Is he younger looking after Brian's experience? Because I, I swear there was a part where Brian describes him as like an old dude. And I mean, to an 11 year old kid, but the way, you know, like his hair and stuff, he seemed elderly and frail. And Polly's like, well, if I didn't have the sheriff in my bed, I'd jump this guy's bones.
2: Yeah, I think it, it it extends further than just his eyes that maybe there's just something about when you look at him, you see mm-hmm. what you would okay, trust. because
0: I was thinking, okay, is this like he's getting energy from these experiences and he is getting, like he's regaining his youth or is he just appearing slightly different based yeah. on what people think I think,
2: it, I think it's all illusionary. Okay. So Leland, very tactfully pumps Polly for information about all these people in town. And he has this notebook and he's writing down all these details. And she, she points out also that none of his objects in the store have prices. And that's when he says something that I think is so amazing. He basically says that anything worth buying is worth dickering over because there are people who are defining worth by need. And that's just such a cool way to, sum up how he runs his shop mm-hmm. is he it seems so innocent you know, this guy just wants to to dicker with people about the the prices but in reality it's something so much more nefarious they wrap up and polly assures him by the end of the day trust me there's gonna be plenty of people coming through don't you worry and sure enough there are he sells a few odds and ends to people as they come in Uh, The interaction with Cindy Rose. What do you guys think about Cindy Rose? She, She buys the vase.
1: Oh, yeah. It's cool seeing him just running the shop. Because there are two very different Leland Gaunts. Because there's the public face where there's these moments where just people come in and shop like normal. And he's just a very charismatic man who's good at bartering. Which is really fascinating. Uh, she finds this very fancy vase that the more she looks at it, the more she thinks, I, I need this. I, uh, mm-hmm. It would look so good in my house. And they go back and forth on it. And when she leaves, she's like, oh, I got him. Mm-hmm. Everyone leaves thinking, I just got the best deal of yeah. my entire life. Whether it's one of his special deals or not which is really cool. Yeah.
0: I feel like he's so good at what he does. He could just have a legit business. He doesn't have?
1: <laughs> does it have to be evil? Yeah, but Yeah, you, but I think that's kind of putting the cart before the horse. Is that you am I using that, right? Yeah, I think so. The 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 selling stuff is a means to the evil end uh, rather than the I other just way don't around. Want right. To be if bad. he
2: could if he couldn't be doing the evil stuff, I don't think he'd want to sell anything. <sighs> <laughs> You'd lose a taste for it. But he he meets Nettie Cobb, who we've only at this point kind of gotten reference to, uh, who made the cake and loves carnival glass. And he invites her back to the shop for an- another day to like, oh, I have some beautiful stuff I want you to come look at. We
1: should describe Nettie Cobb before we move yeah. on. Yeah. Her whole
0: thing, the way King describes her and then sets up this glass. And then what you find out fucked me up. <laughs>
1: She is... Okay, so a thing I love about this book is the pacing is perfect. Yeah. Perfect. The way he sets everything up is so intricate. We've had a lot of books with a lot of characters. And a lot of the time that gets in the way, because there are so many characters that none of them get really to to feel like people, you yeah. know? But this book has maybe more characters than any of them, but they are all so well defined. You feel like you know all of them, and Nettie Cobb is one of my favorite characters.
2: She's she's outstanding. She's this kind of quiet, kind of mousy lady that everyone knows. There's just there's something off. About Nettie and everyone kind of gives her they kind of steer clear of her a little bit and and they make a big deal about that Polly has like really kind of taken her under her wing and she she cleans the the store and it just at first you're just kind of led to believe that this is a lady down on her luck and and Polly has kind of taken her in and it's very sweet and very innocent same thing with her love of this carnival glass. Later, we find out that she stabbed her husband, who was an abusive asshole, in the throat with a fork and spent some years in Juniper Hill.
0: And Polly got her out. Mm-hmm. She helped her with her mortgage. She gave her a job. She helped her get back on her feet. The The stabbing her abusive husband thing, it, it was so cool because when that comes out, you're like, oh, because they you're just picturing this very meek person who you know is scared for a reason, but you don't know why. And it, I don't know, I just feel like, yeah, if your husband's like that, just fucking stab him in the <laughs> yeah. throat with a meat She's fork. <laughs> such a
1: sympathetic character and another of many characters in this book that I have perfectly cast. Yeah? The woman who plays Yoga Jones from Orange is the New Black.
0: Ooh, yeah! Yes. I've only seen the first season.
1: Uh, I don't think she's... I, yeah, I she's in the, the first, season. first season. She's just this very um, skinny... A little bit of an older woman. She also voices Patty Mayonnaise from Doug.
3: (laughs) And that's just her
1: speaking voice. So imagine that. Yeah. And at the end of
2: this scene, we get to see the the other side of the Nettie Cobb coin because Wilma Jerzyk, who we learned about earlier, walks in.
1: Played by the mom from Malcolm in
2: the Middle.
3: Yes! I'm good. (laughs) Oh my God, you're so good at this.
2: We need to get all these pictures together and put our cast (laughs) list up. (laughs) Uh, And I love that as soon as Leland sees Wilma Jerzyk, he knows it's her. Uh, I believe he describes her face as like a shovel and like Cora Rusk and Myra Evans have shown up and they're looking at stuff, mainly the, the photograph of Elvis, but he describes that those two women are, are fat. And (laughs) Wilma Wilma Jerzyk is kind of the same size, but she's, like a lumberjack like she she's an Annie Wilkes she I, is Wilma Jerzyk yep. through and through I did not
1: imagine her as fat at all I imagined her oh this is gonna this is some narrow casting but visually the final Pam don't worry about all it right. there's gonna be some listeners that are like fuck that's awesome <laughs>
3: uh,
2: send us an email if that's you <laughs> next we finally get back with Alan Pangborn in our next chapter. How good did it feel to be back with Alan Pangborn? I love him. He is so cool. Alan has become something different than we knew him mm-hmm. in The Dark Half. We find out that his wife and son and the youngest son, mm-hmm. the youngest son, have died. We we don't find out just right now, but we know they've passed. But it's fucking tragic. Oh god. And as he's coming home he's coming back to the station he's had a few drinks from being up in court and he finds the can with a compressed snake in it that his son bought from a joke shop and there's this moment i wrote this down because i i love it so much he says with the dead there's always one more thing you find that brings you back to them that no matter how much getting uh, the stuff out of the house, like he's, you're always going to find something. And he has that inner voice that is constantly be like, hey, don't forget, wife and kid
1: are dead. In case you forgot for a split second, I'm here to remind you. <laughs> I how did you guys feel about that, that the, the inner monologue? I could have done without it. Yeah. yeah. Because he, we've said it once and we'll say it again, King writes grief so well. Yeah. And the moment when he finds this, you can feel his heart just like breaking. And then there's this jovial voice that's like mocking him that does not fit the tone. Mm-hmm. And I just found it really jarring and distracting. Yeah,
2: the he, the grief is already so clear. We don't need the reminder that he is constantly remembering because we can see it in his actions. Then we get to the station and uh, God, this is a terrible phrase that is stuck in my head. But he sees Buster Keaton's car parked in the crypt space as he constantly refers to
1: it. Yeah, and there's I, some. There's a few instances of pretty problematic language. Yeah, that, like, uh, it's, it's 1991. It's 1991,
2: right? but it's so it's so weird. Like it's only mentioned this one time, and it is a phrase that has stayed in my head because when I read this growing up, I was so jarred by it at the time that it took me by <laughs> like I knew it was coming, and it still hit me. It's just it's a lot. <laughs> we get to uh, meet Norris Ridgwick again back at the station. And we start the the dance between Pangborn and Buster because he's parked in the handicap space and he tells Norris to ticket his car. And Norris, rightfully so, what we find out about Buster Mm -hmm. is scared shitless to do it. What did you think, CM, about Alan's plan?
0: I actually liked his plan. I thought it was really good and it illustrated how well he knows the town And his ability to, the impression I got is that he can be a good sheriff, but he can also play the political game. And sometimes, you know, I guess he feels like he has to play that game to be able to be that good sheriff. So he is telling Norris, who's very resistant to this idea, it's going to be okay. It's only a $5 ticket and he's going to be all mad and he's going to demand that I get rid of this ticket. And I will. And then he's going to owe me.
1: Alan is just extremely competent and good at his job, which um I is very endearing, even though his job sucks. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> After he gets all settled in and Buster gets his car ticketed, he gives Polly a call and he can tell by the tone of her voice that she has had to take painkillers. Something that when we talked about Polly's arthritis, when she meets Leland, she shows him her hands immediately because they describe her hands as misshapen in her gloves because of how severe her arthritis is.
0: This is such an insane moment. So I don't know if anybody out there has something that they like maybe a physical thing or just something about them that they feel is this obvious, horrible defect. And... So for Polly, she wanted to just get that out there right away. Like, you know what? I'm going to show my hands. It's not going to be this thing. I'm just going to put it out there and then it's not going to be an issue. We can move on. I get that. You just want to tell that person, okay, this is the most horrible thing. And then we can move on from it and we don't have to make it a part of our interaction and our exchange. Yeah.
2: That's why you showed us your tail the first time we came in to record. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Not that weird. Yeah. It's not that (laughs) weird.
2: What's weird is Ben's gills.
1: Yeah, it's, that's weird. Uh, hey, what?
2: The, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be judgmental. Are you
0: the deep? <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs> Something that Alan contends with in, in this dealing with Polly's arthritis is that he he's, has a hard time kind of approaching it because he doesn't want to... Like call her out for taking meds, and then her saying, "Oh, it's not that bad," and he knows
1: full well she's lying about it.
0: I want to reread those sections after finishing mm-hmm. that last chapter. <laughs> there
1: are, yeah. We later find out that there are very strong parallels, yeah, between Polly and his deceased wife. wife. Deceased wife. I wanted to say ex-wife, but that's <laughs> not the same thing. Yeah. So instead of
2: pushing it, he just casually talks to her, she fills him in about needful things about Leland Gaunt and makes a big deal about Nettie, is w- willing to go back by herself to see Leland because he has this carnival glass. And this is when we get a glimpse into the Nettie Cobb uh, Wilma Jersey feud. This feud is dark. The, they are they're kind of their neighbors. Mm-hmm. they like share like a backyard. So they're, they're not like next door, but there's there's a little ways between them. And Nettie got a, a puppy. And that puppy was barking. And Wilma lost her goddamn mind about it. She called the cops several times. She called Nettie screaming. She at one point even said if the dog barked one more time, she would come over and slit its throat.
1: We should talk about Wilma Jersey. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's do that. She is a lunatic she is uh, i love the way they describe her is she views her entire life as a series of battles everything everything she's married to uh pete jerzyk who she she says marriage is a lifelong Series of battles, and she will win. She has complete disdain for her husband and uses him as just like a Roomba, basically. Which made the chapter where we find out a little more about P all the more, all the funnier, honestly. I thought, I mean, I guess drugging people isn't usually (laughs) described
0: as funny. You guys, uh, this, uh, the relationship between them is just dripping misery oh yeah Yeah. we have the drugging we have the way he views her he loves her like people love their goddess that they worship their you know Mm -hmm. this destructive power that treats them well but that at any moment could destroy them for no reason it's so cool i kept oh, thinking of annie wilkes but Pete
1: and wilma jerzyk are if misery had actually been a love story if it had a
0: <laughs> happy ending here's,
2: yeah
1: <laughs> here's the difference between
2: annie wilkes and wilma jerzyk though that i think is very important and that's that wilma is a bully yes yes annie there were redeeming qualities there was we never got in her head To know her train of thought, we get in Wilma's head a few times, and it's terrible.
0: We find out that she wasn't even really that annoyed by the puppy's barking. This was just something to keep her going. She just likes to have a a battle to focus on.
2: I I believe at one point they say something like, people like Wilma can smell weakness, and Nettie reeks of it. Mm -hmm. And so she's just such an easy target to tear apart, and she loved torturing her. Next, we meet Hugh Priest, And Hugh Priest is a character I want to talk about because this is the moment I had where I remembered, oh, something very important. When he stumbles drunkenly in front of Needful Things, it talks about him looking at the window. And before it says it, I was like, foxtail. (laughs) For some reason, the image of him looking in the window with this foxtail is so amazing.
1: I The foxtail is something, his his story arc is another one that stuck in my mind from reading it before. It's
0: because it's insane. It, <laughs> it, it's the first time I feel like we really see an example of the power of the shop. Yes. Because he sees this foxtail in the window and it reminds him of when he was a teenager and he was taking his dad's car out for the first time and he had his friends with him. And the top was down, he was riding on the highway and there was a foxtail tied to the antenna.
3: That looks exactly,
1: exactly like it. Exactly
0: like it. And he it it takes him back to this time because he's an alcoholic and he just has a bad life and he's kind of a piece of crap. Yes. Takes him back to this time where life was good. And so he now feels like when he looks at this, and this is what got me, because of course, you know, our Tommyknockers thing with mm. alcoholism and the stuff I've gone through recently, he has this thought where he's like, if I could just have that foxtail. I would be OK. I could go up to a meeting, an AA meeting in the next town and I could get sober. I could put this on my pickup and, and I could I'm too old to change, but I'm not too old to try to change. And you feel that moment for him. Mm-hmm.
1: It makes what he becomes even more sad. And, and it, it's the first instance of seeing that the needful things that needful things sell is more than haunted stuff it's more than that it's a curse
0: yeah it's destructive it It was also cool the way we saw leland interact with him because that was kind of shattered my romantic vision of this amazing <laughs> shop owner
2: yeah he when he feels he's hypnotized when he comes inside and he's having this conversation when he goes to reach for his wallet leland loses his mind and he's like, people think that money and souls are what is important. What do I want with your money or your soul? That's ridiculous. Yeah,
1: he said, basically says, "Your soul is garbage to me. <laughs> I don't fucking care about you at all." So, which is terrifying <laughs> God, because amazing. what is important? Yeah. To you?
2: What I love about this chapter is we go from this moment of Hugh Priest finding his needful thing. And then we cut over to Brian Rusk, who's having uh, a wet dream where he has to write. uh, He writes, I will finish paying for my Sandy Koufax card. And he has to write it 500 times on the board. His teacher's given him a handy and then it turns out to be Wilma Jerzyk. We've all been there. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the moment that greatly foreshadows what Hugh Priest is going to go through Mm -hmm. is because when he wakes up, he becomes obsessed with checking on the card. He, like, he wanted to show it to his dad, but then he was worried his dad would ask too many questions. He he doesn't want to show it to anybody like you would if you'd actually naturally found it. He's so protective and obsessive about it. It's the first time through, this slipped by me completely. and we Because it's just a prelude of what is going to happen to Hugh.
0: He knows that there's something not right about how he got his hands on that card, mm-hmm. even though he's only an 11-year-old boy.
1: It's a running theme throughout the rest of the book of getting what you think you need. But what is the use of getting what you need if it can't be used in a good, productive way?
2: The next day, Nettie goes to Needful Things for her appointment. Ben, do you want to talk about what happens with Nettie?
1: Nettie actually gets up the nerve to go... To needful things, and we see this through the eyes of Polly and Rosalie working at you so and so across the street, and also Polly makes a real fun orgasm joke.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure if she even knows one d- d- Despite it is, the a
1: fact that later on, she yeah she uh, <laughs> has never had one, I guess, until she gets an above the pants HJ. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God.
0: It was interesting to see Nettie's struggle to even walk into the the front door of the shop. Mm -hmm. They watch her just, like, stop and start and stop and then look around like she didn't want anybody to see her. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, Rosalie even says she wanted to go out and encourage her. Mm -hmm. And then she stops because she's like, no, she just ran away. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When she finds the piece of carnival
2: glass, Leland hands it to her. It's this lampshade. And you're so she's so excited about it and she walks away with it and you're having this like happy moment. And then as she's walking away, it's like, oh, this is the exact one I had that my husband broke before I killed
1: him.
0: The thing that basically was like the final straw that drove yeah. her to yeah. kill him. It was just so cool.
1: <laughs> Either you guys have to Google what carnival glass was. 100% I did. Yeah, okay.
0: My grandma has milk glass, so oh, she's okay. obsessed with it. I just kept picturing milk glass. <laughs>
2: I don't know that they're the same or different. No idea. Let's Google, well, I didn't ben, Google, let's Google glass. glass. <laughs> so. We'll Google melt glass, I'll you Google, Google carnival glass. glass. Then we cut back over to the police station, and uh, we find out the aftermath of that ticketing. Buster gets ready to beat the shit out of Norris over a
1: $5 parking ticket. Cannot wait until we get more Buster. <laughs> Buster's such a piece of shit This is I think the last we see Of Buster in this seven chapters Yeah that we read. Mm-hmm. But there is something wrong With Buster Keaton Hilarious nickname by the way <laughs> it, is, it is really great
2: um, Danforth Buster Keaton Danforth
1: Buster Keaton Everyone calls him Buster behind his back Because he's being persecuted And this is another such of a king archetype The person who is as Nettie Cobb would say, a person in authority who is secretly losing his mind.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. And later we find out that there's like a kind of a throwaway line that he has like schizophrenia runs in his family. Mm -hmm. And that's like a secret among the townspeople. And so you just, you can tell that Buster's a ticking clock already. So Alan comes in, he diffuses the situation, follows through with his plan, not the way he was hoping to of, basically making the deal of hey give us some budget considerations and as soon as he solves one crisis that's when Reverend William Rose comes in.
0: I god damn I mean got a, a damma <laughs> I hated that. Uh,
2: did any did either of you guys read it uh, just for fun like a, a crappy Italian stereotype? <laughs>
1: no. no I just heard Reverend Lovejoy's Can, voice. Uh, yeah. Can you? I feel so like this is hardly worth it <laughs>
2: Oh, my God. Uh, It's terrible. (laughs) 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 Worth (laughs) it. Yeah. So uh, Reverend Rose, and and we find out about this in the the opening a little bit, but there is a casino night that is going to be happening. The Catholics are putting on a casino night fundraiser and the Baptists think that this is the devil (laughs) and they are working. the, The town is split in half. There are people wearing anti casino night buttons. There are people putting up pro casino night flyers. It is just the big thing in
1: the town. This was one of my favorite parts of the forward. This is set up. Uh, I mean, they set up everything we've talked about so far. They he the old man on the steps points out Wilma Jersey mm. and says she's she's trouble. She's always angry. But she uh, he um points out a flyer that's stapled to the bandstand and says, you know, there's, I don't know, they're, they're really up in arms at each other. It sets it up so neatly and lets you know this is going to be <laughs> trouble.
2: Yeah, we're not letting this thread go. We cut away uh, to Brian Rusk, who is finally committing his deed in Wilma Jerzyk's backyard. But we'll come back to that shortly. But first we're going to stop back at needful things because Myra Evans, the best friend of Cora Rusk, has decided she will, needs to buy this photo of the king before her before Cora can get to it.
0: This offends me on so many different levels
1: Th- This is one of the scenes in the book, like I said, of a sexual nature that stuck in my brain, not in a good way. <laughs>
0: Oh boy. Okay. First of all, I am sorry. I hate Elvis. Not into the king. Uh,
3: He's not an Elvis. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He likes young girls, and I didn't appreciate that. Anyway. Yeah. Not a fan yeah. personally. So they're obsessed with Elvis, not whole culture, which is irritating. So she's trying <laughs> to get this picture because she can't stand the thought of walking into Cora's home and seeing it hanging up on her mantle. Yeah.
1: They they bring up multiple times. These are best friends.
0: Right. And she, so they have like this weird Elvis paraphernalia rivalry going Mm. on. And so she has to have this. And this is another one that Leland, he's been sort of charming and kind to everybody we like so far, (laughs) but everybody who's kind of, oh, he, his sort of, I guess his true colors come out and he's rude and kind of harsh with her and he dickers with her. He knows exactly how much she can afford and he keeps, you know, she'll offer him 70. And he's like, you fat piece of shit. I know you can afford more than that. She's like, my husband will kill me. I'll have to write a check. He's like, I don't care what he does to you. Do you want this picture or not? And then he tr- he tells her to blow
1: him. There's a reason he specifically treats, he specifically treats Myra like this, I believe. What? Why? She broke the rules. She showed up <gasps> on one of the days oh. appointment only. She walks in. With no appointment. So I believe she broke his rules of engagement, and so he gets mad. Which is not a good excuse for yelling, <laughs> slob my knob at someone. Gobble my crank. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's both sides. An, Im- an important distinction. But but
2: he but he does the same thing to Hugh Priest, too. Like he gets angry at him mm-hmm. and he also showed up. That's yeah. a holy shit, Ben. Yeah. That's awesome. What I do want to talk about. The magic of this item is she holds this picture and she's suddenly on stage Ugh. with God, Elvis. That's
0: gross, too. It's also gross. And it's, it's, and so it's gross. very
2: sexual. But I'm listening to the audiobook and Stephen King is narrating it. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, no. So I need to share a moment with you. Eyes closed, bosom heaving, legs tightening, loosening. Ooh, Myra said, <laughs> shaking like a bowl of jelly on a place. Oh, my
0: oh my god please stop
1: oh. <laughs> well, that was something I never needed to fucking hear in my life. It, that was not good for my ears or brain I experienced it so you had to experience it
3: good job
2: Steve you <laughs> fucking went for it anyway Myra ends up leaving with this photo
1: with no blowies
2: no lobbies.
3: No.
1: <laughs> yeah, but he lets prank. her like. They say he's she scrabbles at his pants, mm. and he just like bats her away. It's so dismissive and awful.
2: <laughs> it, it's, well, his logic is sound. Oral sex gives him amnesia.
3: <laughs> <What>?
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that, I love that. It's like, that's a weird justification, but all right, cool. But what if it's true?
0: <laughs> oh, we know his weakness. Big if true. Yeah, that's- <laughs> Josh, (laughs) don't spoil the final
2: chapter from our listeners. (laughs) My my mistake. Now we get to the resolution, at least as far as we are here with Hugh Priest. Hmm. Because we found out he's going to turn his life around. And he goes home and he's thinking about going to AA. And he's very excited. He pulls the foxtail out. And the first thing he thinks about is, if I put this on my antenna, some kids are going to come rip it off. And stomp on it and throw it in the gutter.
0: It is such an insane thought because no one gives Mm. a shit about that foxtail except for him. And obviously we as a reader see that. But he is so obsessed with it and so afraid of something happening to it that he locks it in a closet on the top shelf.
1: And and thinks about how uh, he he needs to get a big strong lock for Mm. that closet. And then it will feel really safe.
2: And downs a bottle of black velvet yeah, while he does and, it. And he drinks about it why, for
3: a
0: little why bit. Why did he have to hide it? He lives alone, I presume. Because somebody could break in and get it. No, Kids don't the care about bottle, anything. The bottle of booze. Oh, blues. the bottle. He had to like rummage for it.
2: Probably because he's lying to himself. Yeah,
0: that's true.
2: Let's uh, let's revisit Wilma Jerzyk and find out the results of Brian Rusk's deed. Wilma comes home and she asks <laughs> offhandedly...
0: Sorry, I just thought she gets... Little slap and tickle under the what? sheets. <laughs>
1: Such an unpleasant phrase.
0: <laughs> it worked so perfectly. It really did.
2: <laughs> she goes back to get the sheets off the line and they are caked in mud.
0: As she walks right into one and it just, the muddy sheet just slaps her right across her face and chest and gets mud on her. And so she. Loses her shit spectacularly. Yeah,
2: she falls to the ground and she's crawling back to the house. And in her madness, she she hears a dog bark, <clears> and her brain immediately says, "This must have been Nettie. Nettie came and got revenge on me, and she cannot let that stand because it made her feel afraid for just a second. And so, because she was made to feel afraid, she is going to destroy Nettie. Fun prank."
1: And speaking of pranks, question mark, this is when we find out the next chapter opens with Wilma Jerzyk didn't know her husband as well as she thought, <laughs> oh, which so is such a great line. We find out that Pete Jerzyk is deeply in love with his insane wife, mm-hmm. but sometimes when she gets in a mood where she's going to kill someone... He slips her a little bit of a mickey. He got a Xanax prescription
2: for his own health and then uh, just drops it in her coffee.
1: And then she mellows out. I I love the story that she had a feud with a hairdresser from a neighboring town. And it was the first (laughs) time that he he put uh, Xanax in her coffee. And he woke up the next morning and she was like, Doing the dishes and singing, which I thought was a very funny visual because from everything we know about Wilma Jerzyk so far that I never would have imagined that. No.
0: It's so sad because he can't talk to her about it. He can't say, hey, I've (laughs) been slipped you Xanax. Look how it helped you. You should get a prescription and feel better. (laughs) She
2: sees drugs as weakness, Mm -hmm. so she'll handle life on life's terms. yeah
1: goddamn trooper she's
0: like one of those ladies that has a bumper sticker it's like grab life by the balls
1: she does have a bumper sticker that says don't like my driving call 1-800-eat-shit yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) that is great she has kind of calmed down from murder but has since decided that she is going to make nettie take care of herself so she drives around her house. She honks when she drives by. She just keeps making these loops.
0: But she pulls into her drive and sits, sits for like five minutes. Yeah,
2: And so Nettie is obviously losing her fucking mind. And Nettie has to go to work.
0: She's losing her mind for like two reasons, though.
3: Yeah. Because
0: yes. this is where we find out, too, a little bit more similar to similar to Hugh's issue. Nettie is obsessed with this carnival glass. And once she she kind of gets past the wilma thing and she's like okay i'm gonna go outside i'm gonna go to work i gotta get there polly's depending on me because she's been just sitting in a chair cradling this glass and she got it she gets a little ways down the block and thinks did i lock the front door i better go check goes back checks it uh she hides the glass in this this cabinet and locks it with a key and then she's like oh what if i didn't actually lock the cabinet So she goes back to do that. And she keeps doing this until she finally decides that she simply can't leave. Like, she has to stay. And she calls into work for the first time.
2: And she spends the entire morning holding the glass in one hand and a butcher knife in the other. Sitting
1: bolt upright, staring at nothing.
0: I don't, uh, like, if you had to place money, well, you
1: guys have read this. I don't know who I'm more terrified for. (laughs) (laughs) There's no right answer to that. (laughs) We did not mention that these tricks, every time Leland gives one of these special sales, he has them half half money, half deed. And so a bunch of characters have been set up to where we know that they're going to be doing something to someone. Mm-hmm. And the last chapter with Hugh Priest ends with him saying, pretty soon he's going to play a little trick on that crazy netty lady.
3: Yeah. Ooh.
2: So we're just going to have to sit tight and see what these pranks turn out to be, because I remember a few of them very vividly. But then there are some that they've alluded to, and I'm like, God, I got yeah, it. I don't for life of me. Remember by Friday, the store is full. He's made a number of regular sales, also his special deals, but he only makes the special deals when they're alone we get kind of a, another update of like, he sold this to this person who's going to do this. So we have this running tally.
0: I thought it was cool that he brought the one woman back who bought the vase. Yeah. By, by sh- telling her he had its twin. And so she started to think about how, how great it looks on her mantle, but wouldn't it be perfect if there were two? So he gets her alone that way. And I just thought that was kind of crafty.
2: Yeah. It's real clever. We spend the the rest of the night with Polly and Alan and this is when we find out that she's
0: never had an orgasm. She's never had <laughs> an she's never
2: been lifted by her clitoris. Jesus. Which is I'm just reading it straight from the book. Okay. But we find out what happened to uh his wife.
1: So, so I don't have to follow up the very tragic story with this story about <laughs> the very weird fingering scene. <laughs> I I I got I got to get this out of everything in this book. This weird fingering <laughs> is the most burned into my brain. <laughs> and not for the reason you think.
0: Is weird fingering going to be our episode?
1: <laughs> Truly hope not. <laughs> but who knows? So, I read all these Stephen King books in high school. And I kind of got a reputation as uh, being the kid that would read during class instead of paying attention. And so this book in particular, I remember reading in school, in class, surrounded by people. And anytime time scenes like this would come up, I would be terrified. <laughs> it was worse than the scary parts. I would get to these parts and be like, wrap my arms around the book in terror that someone would look over and be like, He's doing what to her? <laughs> <laughs> so, this scene... Also, I was like 15, so I'm like... He literally, just to... Because we haven't even said what he does. He literally lifts her up by the seat of the crotch into the air and holds her there. And she just fucking... Rides Go like a mechanical bull. Yeah, <laughs> and so I'm 15, and I'm like, sex is, huh?
3: <laughs> <laughs> you gotta do what now? <laughs> I don't think I'm that strong.
2: <laughs> I need to be near more walls, <laughs> yeah. just, just for purge.
1: Such a weird. <laughs> is that
0: why a lot of us Stephen King fans were virgins for something? <laughs>
2: That's why Stephen King fans have a lot of counter space. <laughs> <laughs> After having sex, a lot of sex, yeah. Alan, <laughs> they have sex like four times Good in all different places of the house. They're having
1: a great time. Which is even weirder because the first time I read it, I thought she was an old, old lady.
0: <laughs> also, Ben, your interpretation of that as a teenager has been hmm. hands down my most treasured <laughs>
3: moment. <was> <laughs>
2: Uh, Alan is uh, feeling post-coital guilt about his wife because he... (laughs) Now that's an episode. (laughs) (laughs) He uh, he moved on what he felt was appropriate. He doesn't feel bad about moving on, but the town's perception and his, his son's perception, that all weighs on him. And this is when we find out that his wife, Annie, died in a car accident with their youngest child, Todd. She wasn't wearing her seatbelt. She crashed into a tree, flew through the windshield, tore her arm and leg off. Then the car exploded and presumably Todd could have died on impact or he could have died in the fire.
0: He was wearing a seatbelt.
2: Yeah, it's a very long. And again, we talked about Stephen King writing grief. We don't need any of that extra voice stuff because how long he goes over every possible detail, every possible scenario for what happened. The most logical being they found out in the autopsy she had a brain tumor, which is why she'd been having headaches. Alan feels guilty because he didn't notice she'd been having more and more headaches, didn't notice that she'd been taking medication more and
1: more. Not just taking more and more medication. They say he, he finds a bottle of Tylenol that he had just bought and within a week, it was almost empty.
0: There's like 120
1: pills. She, they say that he, uh, someone predicted that she had been taking 20 some Tylenol a day. Mm-hmm. Even if she hadn't died in the car crash, her liver is dead. Yeah, like you can't you, like do eight, a, that. eight a day, Yeah. Eight a day. <laughs> Even, even that is too much <laughs> I trienol. had to do that
0: on my surgery for like two months. Yeah, it sucked.
2: <laughs> it's,
1: it's, yeah. And he,
2: bl- he blames himself because he was still mm-hmm. going through everything that he went through with Thad from the dark half.
0: And I, I love that they pull that in and use that as part of his story mm-hmm. in regards to his wife and son, because you do think like, it, and you never see the fallout of that. And this awesome character that we get just, you know, glimpses of in the dark half. And then we find out how he was impacted by a crazy event. How he's tried to have a normal life after seeing that guy pecked apart by sparrows.
1: Yeah. Did you guys buy that at all? Because this was like not that long after the events of the dark half. And he says like he was struggling and trying his best to hold on to his sanity. And if he saw sparrows, he would scream almost. I don't know. I just have a hard time. He must be the most fucking mentally stable human being. Because <laughs> well, the- I feel like I would be a little more than kind of distracted. Yeah.
2: Well, this uh, this chapter ends in such an amazing way. Oh, he goes to sleep. Yes. And we're revisited by George Stark. He oh. has he has the exact same dream Thad had where he doesn't see george but he feels him behind him and that high-toned son of a bitch welcomes him to Ensville. oh
1: god <laughs> i love a dream sequence i'm on record as saying that and the the second where he was like he could uh, he's in this store that went on and on and they had everything you could ever imagine but then he felt someone standing right behind him he couldn't see goosebumps immediately yeah. i was like so cool.
2: I hate that I read this book before I read The Dark Half. Now, (laughs) I miss out on so much the first time through.
0: Question for you. I wondered while reading this, because to me, it just just tickled me. It's like, oh, man, I know exactly what this is referencing. And it reminded Mm. me of our conversation through The Outsider. How did you feel about that, reading those out of order? At the time, did that stand out as what the heck is this? Or did it kind of fit? Because I felt like it was more graceful. But then I'm like, am I a hypocrite? Do I just feel like it was more graceful because I'm familiar with
2: it? <laughs> it felt just like this ominous. I, I mean, I knew that it was the last Castle Rock book. And so I knew that there was tons of references mm-hmm. I wasn't going to get. So I knew that this was just one of those. And it would, gave me enough information. And it just gave me the ominous tone enough. Like, I never would have guessed the that it was George Stark. Like, yeah. that was just like a creepy ghost thing.
0: Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Well, that is it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us next time, where we will be reading through Chapter 11. For Joshua Kahn and Benjamin Graham, I'm CM Alexander reminding you, the world is full of needy people who don't understand that everything, everything is for sale, if you're willing to pay the price. Hey everyone, Sam Alexander here. Thank you for listening to part one of Needful Things. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to Joel Jones for his Patreon selection of this book. We are having an awesome time reading it. As always, you can find us on social media at Dairy Public Radio and send us an email at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This really helps to keep us up in the charts, and we appreciate your reviews so so much.
3: That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.